Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is December the 24th, 2020, Christmas Eve. Uh, that special day, at least for children, when a certain Santa Claus gets on his uh, gets behind his reindeer and delivers the presents. I'm not entirely sure what Santa will be doing in our COVID year, but I still assume that Santa will be delivering presents. One of the things that uh, occurred to me today as I'm preparing for my interview, it's not a, an interview with Santa Claus or about Christmas, but it pertains, is that Santa Claus, in our culture at least, is always portrayed as a rather large, jovial man. He's always behind the reindeer. He doesn't do a lot of walking or exercise. Uh, my guest today is one of the world's leading authorities on exercise. Um, he is Daniel E. Lieberman. He's a professor of Harvard. Uh, I'm not sure of exercise, but of subjects connected. He's the author of a really interesting new book, Exercise, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. He's just in from Boston or Cambridge on his morning or lunchtime run. Um, Daniel, are we giving a bad example to our kids of Santa Claus as this rather rotund individual who doesn't exercise? <laughs> well, no, he must because he, he has to climb up and down chimneys. Um, so uh, he probably gets a fair amount of physical activity. Your book, uh, Daniel, uh, in all seriousness, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding, Exercise, suggests that uh, exercise doesn't come naturally in uh, evolutionary terms to us. What's the core argument in the book? Well, it's important to distinguish between physical activity, which is which is moving, right? You know, climbing a chimney or climbing into a sled or or walking to work, and, and exercise, which is physical activity that's discretionary and voluntary for the sake of health and fitness. And, and really, exercise is a very modern idea. Until recently, um, nobody did it because people were had to be physically active, but they struggled to get enough food. And so it's an instinct to avoid unnecessary physical activity. And yet today, we shame and blame people uh, for not being physically active instead of helping them in a more compassionate way. That's really the nub. That's really the key argument in the book. I know you didn't mean to do this, uh, Dan, but um, you you shamed me because you're clearly, fr from the book, you're clearly an, an avid runner. Here's an image. I think this is an image of you um, doing one of your runs. You're a, you're a marathon runner. You admit in the book that you grew up a rather scrawny kid. You weren't great at exercise, but you've clearly discovered or rediscovered the joys, um, the the, uh, the excitement of exercise, the meaning of exercise in your life. Um, are you yourself personally addicted to exercise? Could you live without it? I know, as you suggested um, before we came on air, you, you've just had your 
your daily run uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Could you live without it? Um, I, it's become a part of my life. Um, the thing about, about exercise or really physical activity is that um, when you're fit, you, um, you get a dopamine reward for exercising. And, um, and then when you don't exercise, your dopamine receptors are, 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 are just uh, screaming for more, right? It's the molecule of more, quote unquote. And uh, so th that's kind of the basis for what people often call an exercise addiction. Is it an addiction? I don't know. I mean, if you're like doing crazy amounts of exercise and you can't live without it, I would say that's an unhealthy addiction. But it's it's no more addiction than being addicted, say, to eating or to to being in love or 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 you know, well, it's, it, a, it's a kind of a silly term in a way. Well, it might be a silly term. You say can, uh, addicted to eating or falling in love. Those are clearly unhealthy. But I'm not saying you are addicted to. I mean, be, be, you know, be uh, addiction to eating means you get very fat and you become unhealthy. And as you say in your book, while over exercising might not necessarily be beneficial for your health, it's clear that exercise is generally good for one's health. Of course. Now, I mean, the thing is that remember, exercise is a very modern manifestation of a very ancient, you know, behavior, which is physical activity. Um, so, so. Most organisms are quote unquote addicted to being physically active in the sense that they can't not be physically active. And natural selection has, has given us all kinds of rewards for being physically active. Um, the, the, the problem is, is that those rewards tend to come after you've been active, not before. So, so dopamine doesn't get me out the door, um, but dopamine gives me a, a, a sense of well-being after I've gone uh, for a run or, or, or a hike or, or whatever. Uh, we, um, we had Kermit Padson, I don't know if you know his book, Fossil Men, about the quest to find our ancient ancestors, uh, uh, Ardi and, and Lucy. Uh, what would these ancient ancestors think of our obsession <laughs> with exercise? Were Ardi uh, and Lucy, did they do marathon runs? Not, not Ardi or Lucy. So Ardi and Lucy are, are early hominins. They're from a from a sort of before the origins of the genus Homo, which is around two million years ago, Artie and Lucy were probably more like chimpanzees or gorillas in the set, like you know the apes that we're most closely related to, and and that raises an interesting an interesting point because uh, most animals are reasonably active, but we evolved from creatures that are essentially couch potatoes. Chimpanzees are unbelievably inactive, and gorillas even less so. A ch typical chimpanzee spends half of its day sitting on its butt eating. It yeah. walks maybe you know, two to three miles a day. Um, well, that sounds like, a, and, and, and I, I got to be careful about being too rude about Americans because we're supposed to be generous on, on, on Christmas Eve. But isn't that fair that a lot of Americans do the same thing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, but here's the, here's the interesting point. Sedentary, inactive Americans are about as active as chimpanzees. So we're, we're really pretty much like Ardi and Lucy. And of course, that's one of the, the lovely things about your book, uh, Daniel, is that you explode five core myths. And the first is, and you already touched on this, that we as, as, as a species evolved to exercise. You suggest otherwise that we didn't evolve to exercise, which explains the, the paradoxes of, of, of our contemporary culture of exercise. Why? Uh, firstly, why do we think that we evolved to exercise? What accounts for that myth? Well, I think it's because of the way we treat exercise. Is we've medicalized it, we've commercialized it, we've commodified it, and 
And, um, and, and look, it's true, exercise is good for you, but, the, but it's a very modern behavior. Until recently, nobody had the choice but to be very physically active, um, or moderately physically active, not, not crazy, uh, physically active. Um, there was no retirement, there were no weekends, there were no holidays. Every day you had to go out and get food, and, and it was hard to get enough food. So under conditions like that, you need to be physically active, but being doing excess physical activity actually works against you because there are only so many things you can do with energy, right? You can spend it on maintaining your body, you can spend it on growing, you can spend it on, on storing fat, you can spend it on, on moving about, and you can spend it on reproduction. And the only thing natural selection cares about ultimately is reproduction. So excess energy spent on, say, physical activity is energy that you don't spend on reproduction. And so we're selected to not uh, overdo it. Um, Daniel, I know you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm in Berkeley, California, not places which are particularly fond of our current president. I don't want to make this a show about <laughs> Donald Trump, but here we have Donald, as always, sitting, and it seems to be a, a very familiar repose. He's clearly overweight and he takes pride in not exercising. And yet, um, your second myth, which you expose, is that it's unnatural to be indolent. You're suggesting perhaps that Trump's indolence, at least physically, is, is fairly natural. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, um, our ancestors, um, uh, when, they, when they weren't physically active, would take it the easy as much as possible. I mean, you know, one of the, you know, we, 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 we you know, you have an, ins you know, when you sit there at a, at the, you're in an airport or, or a mall and there's an escalator and a stairway next to each other. There's, there's a little voice in you that tells you to take the escalator all the time. Of course, we never evolved to take escalators per se, but, but that's a little voice that's telling you save energy, save energy. And, um, um, and we have to overcome that little voice today because otherwise we don't get any physical activity because we live in a world that's made physical activity optional. And um, so, um, so it's it's a it's a deep and basic and fundamental instinct uh, to to just a, just to avoid unnecessary activity, just as it's an instinct to go for foods that are high in sugar and high in fat, because those again help us with the the one thing that natural selection cares about, which is reproduction. You know, life is a is like an equation, which is like energy in, babies out, right? And so the more energy that goes in, and the more babies that go out, is really what we're we're sadly evolved to do. And it's up to us to kind of override some of those basic instincts. So in all seriousness, do we need to fight against our own almost genetic code in terms of survival? Because we're always taught, or I'm taught, in a very uh, simplistic Darwinian sense that our, our instincts result in survival. But you're suggesting the reverse in some ways. Well, yes. I mean, because, well, first of all, we shouldn't, we shouldn't blame people for their instincts, right? Just like it's, it's you know, when we blame people for struggling. Even Trump, way. even Trump, Dan. <laughs> even Trump. I mean, look. He's allowed to sit and look like a fat pig. <laughs> you know, the Trump is unfortunately, uh, the, the sad thing about Trump is he's, uh, he's kind of denies the science behind physical activity. Well, but, I guess Trump's the uh, the other side of the coin from Santa, Santa not Santa, I was going to say Santa Cruz, Santa Claus. So. <laughs> To, to be kind to Donald Trump is being kind to Santa Claus. Right, but but the point is that um, we live in a world where we've made, I mean, we've done, we've been a very strange world, and and our, the world that we live in leads to what we call mismatch conditions. These are conditions 
that arise because our bodies are poorly or inadequately adapted to the environments that we've created for ourselves. So we're poorly ad adapted to, to environments with, with abundant sugary, fatty food. We're poorly adapted to environments that no longer require us to be physically active. We're poorly adapted to tobacco. We're all kinds of uh, diseases that, uh, that we get that are, are mismatches. And so physical activity is something that um, we never evolved not to do. And uh, as a result, when we're, when we're persistently physically inactive, we make ourselves much more vulnerable to disease. Uh, it's obvious, uh, Dan, that you and I are both sitting. You've got your fancy chair. I've got a, a less fancy chair, but we're both seated. But your myth three is that it's okay to sit. We're being told we're supposed to stand. And in Silicon Valley, there's the cult now of standing. But your argument is that sitting is not necessarily bad for us. Well, it's a slightly more nuanced argument. I mean, we, 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 we treat physical activity and it's and it's and it's and the opposite side of the coin which is inactivity very kind of overly simplistically you know it's, it's um, and one of them is that this this idea that sitting is the new smoking and somehow our ancestors never sat and and that you should be basically physically active all day long but that's impossible you can't exercise the whole day um, and it turns out if you go and study our you know hunter gatherers for example people who don't even own chairs they sit nine to ten hours a day, just like most Americans. So sitting isn't uh, is an intrinsically weird or strange or unnatural thing to do. After all, when you're when you're not being physically active, you want to take it easy. The thing is that there are better and worse ways to sit. And the more we learn about sitting, we learn two key facts. One is that it's not work time sitting that's associated so much with negative health outcomes. It's leisure time sitting. So if you if you never get off your chair, that is, if you sit sit at work all day long and then go home and then continue to sit all evening long. Um, and sit in a car to get to work, et cetera. Well, then obviously you're not getting any physical activity. So it's it's leisure time physical inactivity or leisure time sitting that's mostly associated with, with poor health. And then the other thing is there are better and worse ways to sit. And it turns out that if you just interrupt your sitting, um, sit more actively, um, you get a lot of benefit out of it. It's like, you know, just getting up of every few minutes and, you know, making yourself a cup of tea or petting yeah. the dog or whatever. Well, so my strategy, yeah, on that is I sit all day, but I drink huge amounts of tea, which means, means that I spend a lot of time in the bathroom, too. So I, I guess I'm somehow perfect, perfect. Darwinian in my in my in my addiction. I'm not addicted to running, but I am addicted to tea. You also explode the the myth of of sleep, Daniel, in your book, and you do it in a, in a wonderfully erudite and yet readable way. Uh, you say that we don't really need eight hours of sleep every night and seven might be in, in some ways much better. W why do we believe in these these myths? <laughs> because we love to prescribe things. Right? We like to tell people, like, you know, take two pills and call me in the morning, you know, get eight hours of sleep. Um, and, um, and, we, and we also like to make people stressed about, about not doing, you know, following prescriptions. And somehow the, the idea that eight hours is normal and optimal got, got kind of fixed into our into our kind of public kind of consciousness, our our, 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 our our general sort of, you know, prescription of how to live a life. Turns out if you look at societies where people don't have, have electricity, you know, there's no telephones, there's no internet, there's no TV, there's no cell phones. Uh, they don't sleep eight hours. They, um, they sleep, you know, six to seven hours. Um, and, um, um, and there's actually no historical data that people typically slept eight hours. And, and to my surprise, when I started really delving into the literature, if you look at, at epidemiological data, so you know, big studies, millions of people, right, which, you know, how many hours you sleep is on the x-axis and, and how many, you know, your lifetime expectancy is on your, on your, on your, on the y-axis, 
turns out that the it's a U-shaped curve, and for most people, the, the bottom of the curve is around seven. So, you know, there are some people who benefit from eight and some people who benefit from six. There's a lot of variation around the mean. But the idea that you need eight hours is is, is just kind of made up. And and then the problem is that people then get really stressed about exercise, about sleep. Um, and then stress, of course, unless it's cortisol, and cortisol prevents you from sleeping. So, so I don't want to trivialize the fact that there are people who have sleep problems, insomnia, et cetera. That's serious and it's and it's a problem. But if you're, you know, getting six, seven hours of a night and you feel fine, relax. It's, don't let people, you know, push you about and make you feel like there's something wrong with you. Well, the one thing that I think makes all of us feel something wrong with us is when we watch these Iron Man contests <laughs> and you have some some wonderful descriptions of it. I mean, you're not quite an Iron Man, and I think you're somewhat dubious of the value of it and the the appropriateness of it. We have a photo, one of your photos actually, of of, of an Iron Man contest in Hawaii. Yeah, but that's one of my have... friends actually. Like the fellow yeah. over there. Uh, we there... won't we won't name and shame uh, <laughs> uh, Dan on 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 Christmas Eve. But your fifth and final myth is that. Normal humans trade off speed for endurance. Um, and again, you have uh, this, this really interesting comparison in your book between you and your dog and the way in which dogs have no sense of endurance, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, most animals are designed for speed. Um, you know, they, they, they're, and they're much, and, and we're not, right? We only have two legs. And that means compared to, you know, quadrupeds with fours, so that means we have basically half the cylinder. So we can generate half the power of a quadruped. Um, but we, but we, what, we're, what we're really amazing at is endurance. Um, we can walk long distances, we can run long distances, and we can, we can run animals to death, basically. But, um, but there's this idea that if you're really good at one, you're not good at the other. And that's, and that's really only true when you look at elite athletes. So it's true that the world's best marathoners are are, are, um, are much slower than the world's best 100 meter um, uh, you know, sprinters, like Usain Bolt versus Elliot Kipchoge, the, the two uh, world record holders at the moment for the, for sprint, for the 100 meter and the marathon. But, but you know, Kipchoge, for example, when he's running a marathon, he's running a 440 marathon, um, minute mile. I mean, I can't run, I mean, most, there, there are very few human beings who can run a 440 mile. And, and to do it for 26 miles is astonishing, right? So where's the trade-off in him between speed and endurance? It's really only at the very elite levels that we see this. And it turns out that for most animals and for most human beings, people are good at one, are good at the other. And in fact, if you really want to improve your endurance, one of the best things to do is work on your speed. It's called high-intensity interval training. So, so the, the, the two aren't really as much of a trade-off as, we, as, we, uh, as, we're, as we're often told. Uh, you have some lovely um, metaphors and illusions about the natural world, dogs, other other creatures, chimpanzees. We had Carl Safina on the show uh, a few weeks ago. I'm not familiar with his work. He's yeah. one of the leading writers on on what we as humans can learn from animal cultures. His book, Becoming Wild: How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace. Now, I note that he didn't have anything about exercise there, but in all seriousness, Dan, what can we as humans, when it, on the exercise front, learn from other species, other animals? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, exercise is a uniquely human behavior, right? No other animal goes out and does physical activity solely for the sake of prolonging its life and, and, um, and being healthy, right? But other animals play. Uh, other animals are physically active when it's necessary. 
Um, other animals uh, make physical activity often social. Think about um, you know social carnivores uh, um, uh, who who run together, for example. Um, and um, and but we're kind of interesting compared to other animals because we are one of only two sp known species that typically lives past the age at which we reproduce. The only the other species is is orcas, killer whales, and so humans have done something. Who are in Carl's book, actually. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're fascinating species. and But we've done something really interesting, which is that we live beyond our normal reproductive age by about 20 years for the, on average. Um, uh, that is if you survive childhood. But the reason we do that is that we, we do it in order to be physically active, in order to provision our children and our grandchildren. So we evolved to be physically active back in the, in the old days, I'm, I'm talking millions of years ago now, um, to, 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 um, to, to, to prolong our life. But then there's a kind of a, both a cause and a consequence going on here, because it turns out that the physical activity that we do as we age turns on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms that keep us healthy. So, so, there, so the idea that, you know, you should, you know, you know, once you get hit 60 and kind of relax and kick up your feet and become less active, um, we can learn uh, from studying our ancestors and also other species uh, and our differences from other species is, is, a, is an important critical difference uh, about humans. Uh, and, and, that, and we can't just simply, um, uh, you know, my dog can basically spend the day loafing around all day long, but she doesn't really seem to pay much of a price, but humans do. I wonder, uh, and you don't have this in your book, um, Dan, but I wonder what exercise tells us not about uh, other species or Ardi or Lucy, but other ages. We had the brilliant New York Times writer Timothy Egan on the show recently, writing, uh, talking about his new book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity, in which he, in many ways, walked. He, re he recreated the, 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 um, the path uh, from Canterbury to Rome in search of a faith. The act of walking in the Middle Ages was seen in deeply spiritual terms. Um, how have different civilizations treated exercise and the act of walking in particular? I know that's a big question, but I found that your book didn't really cover that. Well, there's a whole chapter on walking, um, but not not so much from a, a, a act of civilization, you know, as, a, as from the perspective of civilization. But if there's any one fundamental activity that humans evolved to do, it's to walk, right? Your typical, our ancestors walked five to nine miles a day. So to put that into perspective, it's normal to walk from, say, L.A. to, to New York City every year if you're, if you're a human being. That's, that's what we evolved to do. And, and I don't think it's coincidental that in many uh, cultures, physical activity has a kind of spiritual dimension. Um, I can't think, you know, pilgrimages are obviously one example, but, um, but I, I do describe, for example, in the book, the famous uh, running traditions of the Tarahumara. Um, but they're also found in pretty much every Native American. Right, and you do a wonderful job on that. But that's very social. And well, no, no, no. It's more than social. It's a, it's a form of prayer. Um, so, so for many Native American cultures, uh, long distance running is a form of prayer. And I think that that's probably also true of many, many walking traditions as well. It's, it's uh, uh, things that are important to us also take on a spiritual dimension. Do you think you fell fell into the culture trap in some ways, Dan? In your and, and these are my words, not yours, so you you might push back on it. But there seems to be a bit of the, a, a cult of the social in your book. The idea that exercise is best and most meaningfully enjoyed collectively as a group, 
But of course, as Egan reminds us, the, 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 the act of pilgrimage and monasticism were deeply tied. Why should, in your mind, exercise be social? I can't, by the way, I, I walk quite a lot. I can't stand walking with anyone. And my, my walking is enjoyed because I don't have anyone else to talk to and I can think to myself. Well, first of all, let's not confuse a pilgrimage with exercise. Exercise, again, is going, getting on a treadmill. Exercise is, is going up for a five-mile run. Exercise is going to the gym in order to, to lift weights so you're not feeble, right? So, so remember, physical activity and exercise are right. not the That's same. Fair point. Um, but but, but the, remember that most, and I love you know, going for a run um, often by myself, right? As you should pick it, there's short runs. And I love the meditative nature of runs. I don't usually listen to music. Uh, so yes, there's an important meditative component to that, especially if you're a very busy person. You, it's time away from other folks. But but many people struggle to be physically active. They they don't like it. It's not much fun. It's not rewarding. Um, and and think about the things that we that, that that we do tend to think of as fun, and they're often social, right? So exercising with other people, you're playing a game, uh, uh, you know, running with a group of people, going for for a bike ride with some folks, going. Like on, on, on Boxing Day, we're going walking with some friends, you know, it's the only way we can see them, of course, these days. Uh, these are very uh, social activities that um, that make it enjoyable. And, and when people are struggling, trying, you know, because the, the vast majority of Americans want to exercise, but don't. Only about 20% of Americans actually exercise in their leisure time, right? And But, but it's not that they don't want to exercise, it's that they're struggling to do it. And I think that the, the lesson from evolution is to make it A, necessary, but be also social and make it fun. And one of the great ways to make it fun is to make it social. Maybe uh, we need to represent Santa Claus collectively. He shouldn't be doing <laughs> it on his own. He should be doing it in a group. In all seriousness, Dan, um, we've had a number of shows, many shows, in fact, about the environment and the future of the earth. You don't really cover this. Again, it's kind of outside the formal boundaries of your book. But is exercise, even its modern variant of running or walking, do you think it's one way for people to recognize the importance of the earth and the environment? Yeah, I mean, I've never really thought about it that way, but you know, we evolved to be physically active in order to, to use our environments. Um, uh, for millions and millions of years, we were hunter-gatherers and we went out every day and, and found plants to eat and, and hunted animals and climbed trees to get honey and, and, and all those sorts of things. We were out there using, we were, we were being physically active in, our, in the environment. And then, and then for, you know, farming was invented around 600 generations ago. And until very recently, farming was done by hand or with the help of, of animals, but it was still, you know, human beings plowing, planting. Um, I've actually used a plow in, in, in Kenya. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It's, it takes extraordinary strength to, mm. to follow an ox with a plow. Um, and, um, uh, and so we, we now live in this kind of, we're very divorced from, from, from normal life. From, we're divorced from, from the land. We're divorced from, 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 from normal environments. And the result is we have a kind of very strange idea, not only about our bodies, but how to, how to use them. I think a, a good example of that is bare, being barefoot. A lot of people think that being barefoot is like a weird, strange, uh, odd, dangerous thing to do and yet of course our ancestors until recently were all barefoot and most of the animals around us are barefoot um, the fact that we we think that being barefoot is so odd or strange or or uncomfortable means that we're, we're really out of touch with our bodies and which 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 goes along with being out of touch with 
with, 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 the, with the environment. Right. And uh, in terms of the environment, one of the other themes that we've we've dealt with a lot in this book is the connection between social justice and the environment. Uh, exercise, as you suggest in some ways in your book, is really for the privilege. You've got to have money to join a gym. You've got to have the leisure time to, to be able to afford an hour run or live in an area which is safe to run. Is that something that you think we also need to address to, 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 to give more access for exercise, which is clearly healthy for our oh, benefit, uh, to people who are less privileged. I completely agree. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the topsy turvy natures of the world today, which is that until recently, it was only the elites who could be physically inactive, and now it's completely flipped. Right. So now it's only people who have money and time who have time to 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 get out there and go to the to the gym or or take or the iron man and then and afford all the all the equipment oh my gosh yeah i mean that's millionaires exactly iron iron man is mostly for 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 type a millionaires who who, who got you know spent several you know many years you know uh, filling their bank accounts and then went to see the doctor and were told that they're about to die and then they've applied the same kind of passion to to sort of ultra endurance as they did to to becoming wealthy and uh, the um, peter Thiel syndrome dan yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it per se, but 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 the sad fact of the matter is that I mean, look, the, the, the pandemic is, is is putting this on total display, which is that you know the people who are most vulnerable are the people who um, who have the, the least access to good food and to and to physical activity because they you know they're commuting long distances. They don't have they don't live in an environment. And I actually have a friend uh, um, as as we I suggested to you before this uh, in Boston, uh, one of your neighbors who is is working on enabling underprivileged kids to run. I think that's exactly the kind of organizations that we do indeed need to encourage in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the other, of course, place that we need to we need to work on is just schools, ordinary schools all over the country. In fact, all over the world. Are, are leaving children behind by no longer requiring as much physical activity during the day. There's, you know, so, 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 so free time, uh, you know, physical, physical education has been, uh, been decimated in recent years. Um, and of course, during the pandemic, it's, it's taken even bigger hits. And, and of course, that's an important time for, for kids to develop their bodies. It helps them, helps their brains, it helps their moods, it helps, helps mm. them in all kinds of ways. And, um, and, and it's just really uh, incomprehensible that, that we've allowed um, uh, physical education to become uh, so, um, so so decimated in our modern school systems. Well, especially in the, and I've just showed some slides of the COVID age in which we're all walking around in masks and discouraged from doing anything. Finally, Dan, we had uh, Evan Osnos on the show earlier uh, this month talking about his new book, Joe Biden, The American Dreamer, The Next American President. Should Biden have a, a secretary of exercise? Might this be one way to, 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 to make the health mentally and physically of all Americans better? Well, the Department of Health and Human Services has been deeply involved in trying to study and promote exercise, and they, they produce a lot of really good literature. The problem is that you can't just prescribe it. We, the reason I wrote this book is that I think that we you know, we failed to get people to exercise by, by medicalizing it, by commercializing it. I and mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with either of those per se, but it's really obviously not succeeding. I mean, everybody knows that exercise is medicine. You don't need, you don't need um, me or, or, some, or some doctor to tell you that. You already know it. Um, and, you know, Nike's already, you know, out there promoting, you know, just do it, et cetera. But it doesn't work. Um, at least it only works for some people. And so we, we need a new approach. And I think that that approach is going to have to require um, uh, 
an understanding of our evolutionary history um, as well as an understanding of anthropology because because um, um, uh, you know, it's time for a new tack. So if the government wants to get involved in in trying a new tack, that's great. But I'm not sure that you know just telling people to exercise is gonna is gonna, I mean is good any more than we already have is going to be effective. Well, if Joe Biden or any of his people are watching this and are interested in exercise, they could spend their Christmas reading this brilliant new book by Daniel E. Lieberman, Exercise, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. It's a tremendous mix of science, of personal stories, of uh, culture, really tremendous introduction to the, uh, the, both the reality and the myths of exercise. Uh, Dan, you are... Well, I, I guess you're not entirely stuck inside because you're going out for runs every so often in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In addition to your new book, what else should people be reading over Christmas in this strange year of 2020? It is a strange year. Well, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying a book by a colleague of mine, um, which actually might might interest you. It's called um, The Weirdest People in the World by, by Joe Henrik. Are you suggesting um, I'm weird? We're all weird. So weird stands for Western educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. Right. And, and his point is that um, that most of the data we have on psychology um, um, about you know, how people behave comes from a tiny sliver of humanity that's really not representative of, of most of. We need to get him. Is he a friend of yours? We need to get him on the show. You should. He's a he's a colleague of mine, and it's a, it's. Good. Really well, I would take advantage of an introduction from you. Wave it again, Dan. Let's make sure we remember the book. Yeah, the weirdest people in the world. Terrific book. Well, uh, Daniel E. Lieberman, a, a real pleasure and honor to have you. I wish you a happy Christmas. I know you you may not be celebrating Christmas, but you're having your Christmas dinner on, on Boxing Day. And I wish you a very healthy and happy new year and lots of runs in 2021. Same to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.